welcome to the first ever Whiteness in America podcast. I am your host, Tom Bell. I'm really excited that you're joining us today for this first podcast to kick things off. I have a great special guest who I'll introduce in a few minutes. But before I get to that, I wanted to talk briefly about why I started this podcast and what my goals are for it, and a little bit about me as the host. I've been an educator for 12 years, working both in higher education um, and for the state government in Michigan. And I've been an assistant professor at a university in higher ed leadership. And uh, now I'm an administrator working in um, an education program here in the state of Michigan. And I really am committed to addressing issues of whiteness and white supremacy and racism. And I feel as a white person, it's my responsibility to bring forth avenues to elevate the dialogue. And that's what I really want to do. Uh, sometimes with this podcast, we're going to have guests on who will share their lived experience, and sometimes we'll have guests on, and we'll talk about topics and issues. And my hope is to have Josh come back, and we'll get more into the topics and issues. But since this was his first appearance, I wanted to have him have a chance to tell his counter narrative, his his story. A couple things happened. Um, I've been going on when while we were recording. Interestingly, Josh and I, while we were doing the interview, um, President Trump announced his nominee for the Supreme Court, and uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And Josh and I didn't get into it too much, but one of the things I wanted to bring up real quick about Kavanaugh that makes me nervous, um, he hasn't had a lot of rulings that involve race and racism. There was one in Hawaii uh, where he talked about um, Hawaii couldn't restrict folks that weren't native Hawaiians in voting in a particular part of an election, and we can talk about that. Later on, I think that would be an interesting topic to do with a group discussion. But one of the things that Kavanaugh has said is that he will use history, he will use tradition, and he will use precedent. And I think when we think about social systems and constructs, which whiteness is, when you think about history, who has created that history, who has been in power and dominated that, white folks, who has set the tradition and who has able to define what tradition is, white folks in the United States, and who has been part of the precedent? Well, when you look at 108, um, if Kavanaugh goes through, out of the 114 justices that have taken the bench are white men. That is problematic because that system has been dominated by that lens. That's not a liberal or a conservative lens. That is a le- It doesn't matter. It transcends. That lens is from a white-centric perspective. And I think when you think about history, tradition, and precedent out of that lens, that's the viewpoint. And I'm really nervous that Kavanaugh is going to continue to uphold those values. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, this is this podcast is not meant to be conservative or liberal or Democrat or Republican, um, because both conservatives and liberals are responsible for continuing to perpetuate and creating the system of whiteness. We will talk about political issues because race is, is a is a piece of our lived experience. And that's really what I want to get at. We have a racialized lived experience in the United States. And an example of that, Trump's rollback, and uh, proposed rollback of affirmative action policies. And I think that's problematic working in higher education. Education is, and as you'll hear Josh talk about this, education gives access. And it's been, re- it's been long documented that education is a property right. And so when you limit access to property right, Um, that's problematic. And one of the rationales that was given, because it's no longer needed and it's outdated, I don't think that's true. We still have racial oppression in this country. We still have systemic racism. And we still have a lens of whiteness that tend to to rule everything. 
And I think we need to stop being race neutral. We need to be race conscious. And that's what I'm hoping we can do with this podcast. And that's, you'll see with the conversations I have with the guests and, and the guests in particular coming up with Josh, race and racism ought to be talked about. So without further ado, our first guest, um, Josh Trinidad, uh, he is a scholar, he's a critical scholar, he is an educator, he is a musician. Josh has played with and plays with Wheelchair Sports Camp out of Denver, Colorado. He plays with a band called Ghost Star, and he also plays with the Joshua Trinidad Trio, who just released an album. It's Josh's seventh studio album called In November, and that album was released under uh, Rare Noise Records. So without further ado, um, our very first guest, uh, Joshua Trinidad. Let's bring Josh in. Well, welcome, Josh, to the, the very first guest for uh, Whiteness in America podcast. How does it feel? I'm excited. This is, uh, I mean, since you mentioned it to me, I've been not only thinking about it, but just excited to see, you know, where this, uh, not only this podcast is going to go, but this whole approach that you're taking to this discussion. So thank you. Well, thanks for being here. And for those that don't know, Josh, Josh is uh, from Colorado. He's an accomplished musician. He just released his seventh album. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah seventh album seven. in November and uh, a worldwide release. Uh, he's an educator. He's an assistant principal at a school. He's a doctoral student at Colorado State University, uh, a, a adjunct professor at Colorado State University. Um, and all around, just uh, he's an activist. He's a scholar. He's a, uh, a critical scholar at that, and so I'm really excited to have him as our first guest. So, uh, Josh, tell us a little bit about uh, growing up. What was that like for you? Well, I grew up, uh, I was born in northern Colorado in a city uh, just south of Fort Collins, actually, Loveland. Uh, I didn't spend a whole bunch of time there because uh, my father was a union electrician, so we moved a lot um, as, as I was younger. Um, we actually moved to Massachusetts, uh, for a oh, small, I didn't know that. yeah, we lived in Cape Cod, which was, uh, in the kind of like the, the larger part of the Cape, which is known as Buzzards Bay. And so I lived there for a little bit and then, um, spent, spent my first years of school, like my first part of kindergarten in LA. And so we actually <laughs> jumped to the other side of the country and lived, um, uh, in Covina, California for a little while. So my first, um, kind of my first experience of education was in Los Angeles. Um, then, uh, after a little bit of time in LA, we eventually moved back to Loveland for just a short stint and then, um, ended up growing in the Northern part of Denver, um, and finishing school in high school. Um, kind of more of like on the prairie side of, uh, Colorado, because it's either one or the other in Colorado. Right. I don't the know mountains people, on one side. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like a split down the middle. And so I was on the east side of I-25, where it's more like, you know, more of Little Hustle and Prairie style. And so um, after finishing high school, I went to Western State College in Gunnison, Colorado, and did a year of um, schooling there, and then uh, eventually graduated from CU Denver, uh, with my music degree, uh, and then got my master's degree at TU Boulder in multicultural education, and then now I'm in this uh, doctoral pro program at CSU in Fort Collins. Nice, nice. Yeah. So, uh, 
if you could talk a little bit about your racialized experience. Well, it's it was really interesting. I think you know I, I was I, I'm starting to realize so much more lately. I think uh, being in this PhD program and I think having my own kids growing up, I, I'm starting to think about my lived experience more because I'm watching it happen with my own children. And I think it's funny how I, I don't, I didn't really think about those things in my twenties so much, but now that I'm in my thirties, I'm, I'm reflecting so much more on those things. And, you know, growing up, um, my first experience in education was in Los Angeles. And I was thinking how, how lucky I was to be in such a diverse classroom I was in a classroom with students that were SPED students, uh, gifted students, students of um, international students. We had, uh, you know, Latino students, African-American students all in one class. And I guess at the moment I didn't really think, I thought that was considered like, like the norm, you know, and I I use that word, um, you know, to kind of express my, I lived experience. I thought this is the way it should be or the way it is. <laughs> and when my family moved us back to Loveland after living in Los Angeles, even as a kindergartner, first grader, I noticed the shift um, culturally. Um, I knew that things were really different. I didn't understand why or how or right. exactly all those things. But now having my own kids, I, I reflect through their experience about like how that was kind of a big deal. And I think, I mean, just being a youngster like that in in those primary grades, I I knew that my experience was different than those around me when we moved back to Loveland, but I wasn't sure what, like I wasn't sure why. Um, And now now I'm starting to understand that those feelings inside of me were were real. And now I'm starting to kind of unpack those, uh, not only through this program, but through my kids' experiences too now. That's really unique, and and I like the way you put that because that kind of resonates with me uh, on a different level. Because I, you know, being a white person, you know, I grew up in a very homogenous community. So for me, my my racialized experience wasn't even uh, there, except for there were a few kids of color in my school, um, but very rarely was that ever discussed or talked about yeah. or you know and i think when we were growing up like you and i are roughly the same age right there was this conversation of the united states being a melting pot right so everyone moves to this and i would i would argue that it moves to a whiteness identity right so everyone's trying to embrace or own these things that are part of what being white is even if the skin tone doesn't match sure um, and so that's that's exactly how my lived experience was and i imagine loveland might have been somewhat similar right yeah and i i, I should have backed up and kind of like gave some background information to that so in in west covina where i went to school originally in los angeles was predominantly an african-american kind of chicano uh, area and so the school i went to was was predominantly that but it, it was truly a mixed school um it was called Cypress Elementary, I remember now. And our, okay. we, were, we were the bears. <laughs> That's all I remember. We were the bears. <laughs> Red and white. <laughs> and um, and I, I just, I didn't really think so much about it until I moved to Loveland. And then I saw a shift um, in the demographics and the students I was around. I didn't see any African-American students in Loveland. I didn't see students like me. And I, I probably should say that, that I identify as Chicano, Mexican-American. And 
I didn't see any students like me. And, um, you know, I think, I mean, just, just knowing that I, I knew I was other, I knew that I wasn't of right. kind of like the dominant crowd. So Chicano is a, it's an activist term right. at its root. Um, and I, I compare it a lot to people that identify as being black. Some people like to be called black. It's an right. empowering term. It references many things. Some would say that it's even, you know, references the movement of the black Panthers and that, that whole idea of the black Panthers being black is beautiful. Black is powerful and embracing the term black as this powerful term. Um, same with the word Chicano. It's, it's the same kind of um, approach that it's a powerful term. It's an empowering way of taking a term versus like Mexican American, which is also fine. Um, but it's, it's very different than being Hispanic. Right. Which is just a, a, a lumping of all right. that may or may not be. Yeah. And then that yeah. identity. Exactly. Yeah. And, and those terms like Hispanic and Latino are so large and, and the context in which that they're used um, are, they don't really get to the root of what Chicano is. And Chicano is part of that movement. Um, and really part of the, I'd say like the foundation of what um, Corky Gonzalez and Cesar Chavez. Right. And people that here specifically in Colorado led a movement um, I, my, my older sister, Cynthia, she's also a PhD student at um, CU Denver. She remembers watching Cesar Chavez march down um, her street. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, when she was, when she was younger in Fort Lupton, leading um, field workers uh, marching from Fort Lupton to Denver. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So it's, it's a deeply rooted term that I think is also familial. Right. I'd like to get to talk a little bit about your activist lens uh, in a little bit, but I have a question about your grade school and primary school experience, particularly in Colorado. Was there a lot of representation of you or did you ever have teachers that, that engaged you from a cultural aspect or from uh, your Chicano identity? Um, Yeah. Did that, or was it just completely, I guess I'm, I'm projecting my own experience, whitewashed? Right. Well, I, um, when I, I guess I didn't talk about this. Um, so after, after we lived in Loveland, I was mentioning that we kind of moved to like the prairie. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Of, um, you know, of Colorado and Northern, Northern Denver. Um, there's, there's a heavy population of Chicanos, Latinos, uh, Mexican Americans that um, that live in that region, and I went to school, and it's just north of Denver called Brighton. And when I was in Brighton, luckily, I came into a school district that was being revolutionized by many great educators at the time. Um, there was a program at CU Boulder called the Bueno Program, and it was, oh, yeah. it was in the seventies. Yeah, it was in the seventies when it first started, and um, it was kind of a group of activists, educators, bilingual educators that came together to write federal grants that would train teachers to be more equipped in the classroom but with bilingual education. And I happened to come into that district right at like the, the, the peak of that kind of surge of great teachers coming into the district. And so when I shifted from Loveland to Brighton, I was... I was like engulfed with some amazing teachers 
Um, but it was interesting when I came in in second grade, they said that I, I had a reading level of under a kindergarten level. Oh. And so they, they put me in sped. They weren't sure if I was a, like, they're like, is this student like an English language learner? And it was in third grade. I had a, it was um, a teacher named Doris Candelaria who took me like basically under her wing and taught me how to read. And she was part of this program. She, you know, and then the next teacher I had after that was another um, bilingual educator under this kind of like activist educator bilingual program. And the funny part about all of that is, is that later in my career, I ended up working for that program and, and actually teaching some of those teachers myself. That's um, awesome. Full circle. And, yeah, it's full circle. Um, but I think if that program, the Bueno program didn't exist, I, I, I don't know what would have happened um, with, with the group of students that I was with even um, because a lot of us went on to do some pretty incredible things. A lot of us actually became teachers. Yeah. Um, there was a good chunk of us in the elementary school that all just became educators. It was really interesting. So I think due to that program existing and through like a teacher training program, um, it, it shifted the landscape. What drew you to being an educator and what drew you to being a musician and what drew you to using music as a way to, you know, this is a very loaded question, but no. Um, kind of use that as a source both to educate and I think even in some cases you, your research right now um, for your dissertation disrupt um, and, and examine and look at and elevate voices in the counter narrative. Um, uh, talk a little bit about what built that for sure. you. Well, I, I think some of my most powerful moments of education just being a student always happened in a music room, a band room, um, private lessons. There was always, I, I wouldn't say they were all in, in those settings, but I would say a majority of them were. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's interesting because in my almost all my schooling, except until I get into college, um, I had, I had white teachers and, um, it's interesting because in those experiences I felt, um, that was like uh, like a a crossroad or a meeting point of my experience as as a Chicano, where I met whiteness, like on this playing field in a classroom, where um, I was excited about it uh, about education and music. And luckily, and again, I, I felt like there's this other coin of luck within this. And I don't know if it's because of this Bueno program, but uh, I had teachers that in in, in the short term were just like woke. And and willing to like to guide me into into um, and to not necessarily take like my skin color into consideration, but were truly interested in like my excitement, right? Um, and so I think their excitement about me and and what I loved about music just like resonated with me. I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to have this experience with kids all the time. Um, so I taught music for two years and it was, it was actually really difficult because um, I felt like it was something that I, I'm glad I did, but um, I felt like in, I wanted to make like a bigger impact with the students than just in a music classroom. And that's what made me go into a master's program to start thinking about leadership and how to transform classrooms like mm-hmm. music classrooms all across not only a school, but like a district or 
a state or even the country. Um, so that's kind of like how it worked. But I, uh, I guess to answer your question, because it was such a, it's a difficult question. I was lucky enough to have great teachers that, um, that were willing and, and took me as I was. Like they met me where I was and yeah. I didn't come from money. I didn't come from means of, um, you know, years of private education with music at like six years old, like taking piano, you know, I, I was just excited about it. And it wasn't until later to high school that I started to invest more in like my own money. My parents started to invest a little bit what they had into me, but I was, I was just lucky at the time. But you said you had also interacted or met whiteness. Did, what did that look like for you when, when you experienced that kind of that systemic whiteness that, that was rearing in, in your educational experience? What did that look like for you? Well, I, th- I think that's, that's exactly what my research is. It's at its foundation is really addressing is I, I remember the first time I ever made like an honor choir an honor band mm-hmm. and I auditioned and my teacher was like, Oh, you're in the honor choir. I was like, sweet. This is gonna be great. I remember walking in and it was like all white kids except for like me and this other girl named Melissa. And I was like, this class looks completely different than like our normal class, you know, like where did everybody go? And, um, you know, as I talked to these kids, like, oh yeah, I take piano from Miss Bruns on Sundays. I'm like, wow, like, cool. Like, what do you, I play oboe. And I'm like, what? Like, you have an oboe? What's, a, what's an oboe? You know? <laughs> I didn't even know what an oboe was. I still have my recorder. <laughs> you still have your recorder, see? <laughs> and I just went around the room, and all these kids were, like, taking lessons, or they played in, like, their church groups, and, you know, they, they had rehearsals, all this stuff. Like, they were, like, musicians. And I, I, wasn't, I wasn't like that. I just loved the music, and, you know, I – and. I, they came from a lot of these kids from backgrounds where it was systemically passed on. Like my mom was a, you know, was in choir in college or my dad taught band and, and none of those kids were Brown kids. A lot of those kids were white kids. Right. So, you know, they're like, what, what, what instrument does your dad play? I'm like, well, my dad loves music, but he's electrician, you know, like, you know, my mom is a hairdresser, but they love music, but they're not musicians. And so I didn't come from that that background, that kind of like systemic privilege. Um, and it's, and I know we're going to get to this later, but you know, I'll just kind of like put it out there is like, we see that even in the professional music scenes across, mm-hmm. not even just the U S but the world. Like um, it hit me the other day, like one of my good friends who I really look up to, he's a great trumpet player here in town and he's in some amazing funk bands like across the country and there, he put he posted up this uh, video of him playing in church, and it sounded beautiful. I was like, "Wow, he sounds great!" And in in the caption, he said, "Here's me and my father playing together." I was like, "What? Like, your dad's a musician?" And then he wrote something about his mom being a musician. I was like, "Well, damn! Like, you were set up like so nicely, like to be in that culture, the like this kind of systemic like culture where you were able to tap into some of this luxury." Right. I just grew up with a bunch of records in this, in my house and a bunch of like, you know, tape and tapes and and that's 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 was my starting point, you know. I, I saw that you rediscovered or, or or got a new record recently. I did the John Coltrane. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's called Both Directions. Yeah. It's like the unreleased record of John Coltrane. No, like we don't say like, I'm going to go get John Coltrane's new record. Right. You know, we can't say that. Now we can. No, now you can. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of amazing works of art, works of art, you recently released your seventh studio album. The album is called In November. We're going to play a, a brief snippet of the track, uh, Feathers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and listen to Feathers off of Josh's latest record in November. tell us a little bit about what inspired that song so feathers um is about kind of like my bicultural experience in the u.s um i think sometimes people can judge a book by its cover and just say like oh well you're brown so you go in the brown category but the brown category has you know some divisions in it right and um growing up it was interesting my mom never really knew much about her culture and sometimes we just called ourselves native americans my mom was just like well your grandma says you're cherokee so i don't know but as i think my older sister started going through the bueno program uh-huh. and having like these really rich discussions about race and culture um you know we realized that like my mom is truly new mexican like new mexican is this deep and rich like historical like culture that I think is still being like discovered and in the sense of like research and, and how long it's existed because it's, it's so deep. Mm-hmm. And um, so my mom, she's like a proud New Mexican. She, she, uh, her, both her mom and dad both came from uh, New Mexico, which uh, the lineage comes from Spain being settled and right. conquered. Um, but, um, and then my dad is, is Mexican, like Mexican, <laughs> like, both his parents were Mexican. <laughs> so, um, but we always grew up with uh, his identity is kind of like our main identity in the house. So uh-huh. um, we just, we just, we always thought of ourselves as Mexican. But this song um, really taps into kind of the experience of both sides of being Mexican American and kind of growing up with rock music. And so there's like a rock kind of beat to it. Um, but then you also hear kind of like traditional, um, like Mexican, um, like trumpet playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the reason I call it feathers is because 
the Mexican bird that's on the flag and um, kind of the, the, the New Mexican, uh, the firebird, the phoenix bird. Um, I kind of took both of those birds and thought like, wow, you know, it's interesting that both of these animals are represented in kind of uh, not only like culturally, but as kind of a, as like a representation of a community. And, you know, feathers is like this, this thing that these birds, these two birds both share. They both have these feathers. It's, so, a, it's a beautiful song. Like I, I love it. It's the a, first time I heard, heard it, I was like, oh. I love the way that the guys play on the record. And they, they really, it was interesting because they're Norwegians. Right. <laughs> and you like, recorded the album where? Uh, it was recorded in Giseki, Norway, which is about, um, it's like a three-hour flight north of Oslo. Mm. Um, and it's, it's about half an hour north of Ulsan, uh in Norway. But, yeah, they performed it so, so beautifully. And we're able to, like, translate kind of what I'm telling you through their instruments so well. Yeah. Are there any other tracks on the album that you feel like really personify um, what you were trying to get when you made the album? I know that you went through quite a lengthy process in writing. Um, what really speaks to you when you listen to it now? Well, um, I, gr- I grew up listening to a lot of Miles Davis when I was in college. And, um, you know, I was always told, like, less is best from even my, be- my band teachers. Like, less is best. Like, don't be too naughty. And I still think about, like, even the way I was taught in band was, like, very simple. Like, don't, you don't need to play a lot to say a lot. Um, and so sometimes I, I think about that even socially and academically, like, even in the space of, like, us in this PhD program, like, you know, I, uh, I'm trying to make an impact using um, not a lot of flashiness, but... Um, sometimes just like subtle words in my dissertation should be able to say more than what I would in say five pages. Um, and so, you know, I can that, use that in my writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a process. Yeah. So a, a lot of my trumpet playing is very like, um, more space than sound. Which um, I really appreciate because I know when I first met you, and we started talking about your, your, your playing and the way you played. You're like, you know how some people do the, they just play scales, fast scales. And you're like, I yeah. let the sound actually resonate. And, and I would say that, that it's, it's very much like that, that the open space is just as important as the filled space in, in your music and where you choose to come in and out um, is, is more, in my opinion, more important than the really fast and there's a skill to that set, but yeah. it's a really nice change of pace. Um, as a matter of fact, whenever I hear the, um, there's a TV show, and I know you don't watch TV on Showtime, uh, called Homeland. And yeah. I, there's the, the intro song. I think it's a Miles Davis song, actually. Oh, I, okay. I hear it. I'm like, oh, that sounds just like Josh. Oh, that's um, crazy. Yeah. And so uh, it always reminds me of your the way you play and your style. I'm, um, yeah. And I'm still like, I feel like, I'm barely starting to understand Miles Davis now. Like I'm like ready. So I have to like re-listen to everything. It's like Frere. Like the first time you read Frere, you're not really ready for it. And then the second time you're like, Oh, okay. It's like the fifth time you get. Right. (laughs) And even then you don't really understand half of it because it's (laughs) transient. That's true. Yeah. So, 
you brought it up a little bit about the music scene. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really curious t- to know what your thoughts are about, do you think musicians have not a responsibility, but like, what do you think the ability is of, of a musician to be kind of this um, disruptor of oppressive systems? So do you use that as a, as a, a way to engage in the way you play with the bands you choose to play with um, or, or is it just simply, you know, this is the gig, this is my job. So I need to do, do the work. I, I, I guess it's always been inside of me to, I guess like approaching music has always been a cultural experience, but I think it's really been amped up in the last 10 years. Um, you know, I, I, I don't even know where to start with this because that's such a big question. I think going into the college setting as a musician, as I've mentioned before in, in, you know, in the PhD classes that we've taken, you know, I was rejected by some schools initially. Um, and it, it just kind of blew my mind because I was like an all-state orchestra, an all-state band. And, you know, I wanted to be like the kids on the brochure. You know, I want to be like right. one of those fun kids in the jazz program. I wanted to be like all those kids. And now I look at those brochures, I'm like, why aren't there any brown kids? You know, right. I, and there's even like a lack of like African-American uh, musicians in these programs that, I mean, this is their culture. Like, this is deeply rooted in their American experience. Like, jazz music is America's classical music, and they are their culture is like right. the the root, the foundation. And um, you know, I remember seeing these brochures of like audition at this college, like be part of this program. And I remember looking at those brochures. Now I'm thinking, like, why why doesn't nobody look like me in those brochures? It's it's uh, actually interesting you bring that up. I don't mean to interrupt, but no. uh, but you when you talk about jazz, and I'll even say in a certain sense, certain certain um, hip hop and other types of and blues is a great example yeah. too, where it's been appropriated. And so, if you think about whiteness as property, right, and ownership of those things, right, right. Now they're churning money in a sense, or with jazz, yeah. it, it's. It is it has become part of a, a scene or a a status of I think certain listeners, right. and it's even though many of the musicians still are uh, I think folks of color, the folks that are benefiting and earning and making money and going places with it um, are white. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah. That's, that's just interesting. Yeah, it is interesting, and I, I, I recently saw, um, I was on Facebook, and somebody had posted, like, this, the University of Colorado Boulder Jazz Camp, and I, I was like, oh, that's cool, you know, and of course, like, I automatically looked at the brochure, and I'm like, gosh, like, again, still, like, from when I was going to these camps and trying to be part of this clique, um, still, like, nothing's changed, you know, like, we still have these affluent students paying like outrageous amount of money to go spend a week at a university learning what is historically like an African-American experience and those of like many different, you know, um, cultures, right. you know, coming out of New Orleans, but like the, these kids are paying like a thousand dollars a month and to go and, and play jazz and like none of them look like me. And so, um, I remember when I went to like jazz camp, like it was, it was a process. Like I was like, how are we going to get a down payment? Like somehow my parents were able to like pull together some money and then it's like, how do you pay the rest of it? And then 
when I show up, I got to make sure my trumpet is just as good as the other kids. And I can't look like a fool showing up and like, you know, like, like I'm just like off the practice squad. I got to look like I'm on varsity. Right. So that mentality of like that experience has transcended into my professional life where I said, you know what? I don't want to be like that. And I always want to be like above the, the, above the rest. And so I've had to work really, really hard to, to kind of, um, to achieve that. And, you know, even if that means like doing the extra gigs or, you know, like networking with certain people and, um, like I've, I've really tried to stay above that so that I could be the image for other students that are trying to access, you know, whether it's jazz camps or a jazz gig or just a gig or just like being a musician that hopefully they'll come across my image. Right. I will show them it's, it's okay to be you. You brought it up earlier and I wanted to circle back to it of how you experience or have seen racism and whiteness in, in music in the music scene, both I think locally you talked about and nationally, internationally potentially too. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, it was, um, it was interesting when I went to Norway, I, I, I was like Googling, like, what was my experience going to be like? I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know how, um, I was going to be received, um, in other countries, especially like going to a place where a lot of like culturally my, my people, and I say my people like culturally, like us as a group travel. And I was nervous. Like I, at the at the time I went to Norway, it was like just like at the end of like Obama era, beginning of like we knew there was going to be a shift in politics. We didn't know what though, and so it was kind of like just like a rocky time, like to like not to say like now's any better, but you know, I just, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah, it was the beginning of of weirdness, and so I was a little nervous and accepted and. um you know, I have a lot of respect for um, Norwegians and uh, when I was in Iceland and in Sweden, like I felt like people when I traveled internationally truly asked about my um, my experience and, and like me as a person. They didn't, I'd say everybody interacted with me. Like we had great conversations and I felt like there was a, a, a like a deep level of respect, um, which was new for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the musicians that I'm around too, like the musicians I recorded with, and they're also really well-traveled people, um, very educated people. And, and again, like woke individuals. So right. like those discussions, it was interesting. Even when they came here to the U S like the drummer I played with Stola Solberg was like, he just knew so much about like, the minoritized experience in the U S I was like, man, how do you know all this? Like he was just so aware to it. And I don't know if he's just well read. I kn- we didn't get into it, but my wife, Erin was like, she was like, wow, like Stola is like, he's like a scholar sometimes. Cause he's like, he knows his stuff. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'd say my international experience has been so great. And is it similar in, uh, in, uh, in Colorado, the music scene in Colorado? No, um, no, and that's that's one of the things that I I knew I was up against when I started playing music here in, in Denver was everything was singer songwriter folk music like Lumineers, um, 
and you didn't see like a lot of like Chicano people at that time, like doing that music. Um, now I appreciate it because I see some like people that are really like going out there and doing their music that are Chicanos. I don't know if they identify them that, but I call them that. And, um, and I see them creating music that's not traditionally like assumed by the culture. Right. Um, because it was always that thing is like, oh, Josh, you play trumpet, so you must like love mariachi music. And it's like, well, that's not necessarily true. Like, I do this other stuff and then right. this other stuff. And even jazz, even the word jazz music, like, I don't even know if I play jazz music. Um, right. And I, and I think um, over, the, over the last few years, I've, I've noticed a, a, a small spike actually in Denver of, of um, like, Latinos really becoming the forefront of, of um, Denver music. And it's interesting because a lot of them are my close friends and I don't know if like it's because of my experience or if it's a shared experience that we're both doing this together, but it's really cool to see like actually what's happening. There's been a, a, a small shift. Well, I think, I think you do have a lot of influence on that. And I, that's a really good transition point too, to what you're trying to do with your dissertation research. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about where, the, where you got the idea for that and what you're, what you're working on for yeah. Hopefully your, your project that will earn you your, your three great letters behind your last name. <laughs> yeah, ABD. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, my experience in higher education, being a music major, it was unique. And um, when I took the qualitative research class with Dr. Camborellis, he he made such he made such good points about like what we should research and how we should research and you know what's important you know just like simple questions about like why 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 are we researchers I remember he asked that and um, initially I wanted to research like um, the first generation experience for Chicano students in higher ed which hasn't shifted much but having taken his research class it it became more focused in that I wanted to research my experience as a Chicano going through a higher ed music program. And what I'm, what I'm trying to discover or trying to understand is what I experience. Is it a siloed one time anomaly? Is this like, is it me only like noticing like that I'm the only like, you know, like student that's, you know, Latino Chicano, in the classroom that, you know, that's about to graduate from the program or that's still in the program or that's in the top jazz band. Like I noticed that there were all these like anomalies and like, and then to have the rest of the students in the class that are like coming from money. And so what I'm trying to understand is like, is my experience siloed or is it shared is is the Chicano experience in higher ed music programs? Um, is it something that is, has been going on for a long time? Like this, this uh, dominant culture being the forefront of, of the curriculum and the experience, this whiteness, this, this privilege of coming from parents that play organ or a mom that has been a vocalist or a dad that has a PhD in music. Like, is that, is that normal? <laughs> like, is that, is that, is that how it works? Is that, is that all of, that exists in higher ed? 
Um, well, even in the way that in the types of music that you're taught is very Eurocentric, right? And and right. and what you're expected to teach when you teach band, um, right? And symphony, right? Or orchestra. Yeah. It's it's not. It's very traditionally, and I'll use the term traditional because it's what I think has been espoused by the white male band instructor, right? For yeah. lack of a better terminology, right? Yeah. Um, that's been heading high school bands and middle school bands for the last century. Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And exactly that too. Like, um, you know, I think about some of these really successful music programs, specifically like in the South and these, um, um, you know, how, how some great professors have incorporated the music that, is culturally um, relevant mm-hmm. to the students and using that as an academic platform in which you can then tussle with like the content um, versus that of like, like you said, like the Eurocentric kind of approach, like talking about, you know, like Bach and his inventions and right. all these things versus like, can that same discussion exist talking about like Kendrick Labar or can that exist talking about, like Santana, can that exist? Even talking about like even earlier music, like the music of like Aztec, um, mm. like people, like can we can we talk about that versus like gamelan orchestras or that versus like um, some some early Gregorian chants? Like why why are we being taught this like very even Christian centric, right. which does exist historically? I get it but we're also missing such a big piece of, of global history in which music can be taught for students like myself. Do you see, and then this might be a too quick of a transition. Do you see that as somewhat of a role uh, that you play as an assistant principal now um, with your teachers, not just in music, but in mm-hmm. all disciplines of thinking about it and reframing it. Right. So you and I have kind of danced yep. around the the topic a little bit, but you know, centering the lived experiences of the folks that are folks of color or that come from other countries or that it's, it's not Eurocentric. So when we right. teach history, it's taught from a very American Eurocentric, still Western Civ perspective, even yeah. though most state right. standards, as you and I know, have a world perspectives piece, but it's mm-hmm. still taught from the lens of white, European, even um, masculine um, yeah, perspectives, right. and so right. I think flipping that and 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 turning that a little bit, even if your classrooms are predominantly white, even mm-hmm. if your your faculty are predominantly white, you still need right. to flip that, right? And I think right. that's something that's interesting as educators that have an influence can do. I, I don't know if that's kind of, you know, I know this role is new for you. So I got this position. Uh, it was about five months ago. I I, I was told I was going to be the assistant principal. Congratulations, by the way. Yeah, thanks. I'm I'm excited, and I it feels it feels right in my my life, like right now in this timeline. Um, but we actually we've been spending the summer revamping the teacher eval um, observations of what that looks like, and when we get to the core of like what it is that we want to see when we walk into a classroom, what you said is exactly at the foundation of of where we're starting. Um, you know, when we originally started putting together this teacher eval observation rubric, we said, uh, 
let's just put let's just put culturally relevant as a as a box. And I said, no, you know what? Maybe we should lace the whole damn thing with cultural relevancy instead of it being just in one box, right? Right. And so what we did is you can go through our teacher rubric now, like the observation rubric, and you'll see terms like cultural wealth, cultural relevancy, uh, cultural responsive pedagogy all throughout the rubric and not in just like one box. And that was my goal coming into this position is that I wanted to use the wealth of our students to to be the leverage point of of, educa- of knowledge in the classroom, which that comes from Terra Yoso, right? Um, critical, you know, critical race theorist, and and we're using her work as like our foundation in the school. Yeah, her and, work is essential in that. Yeah, absolutely. And so now, using her her research and and, and her approach to cultural rel- relative teaching. Um, it's 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 going to be in the teacher eval. It's it's in the curriculum. It's um, it's the way that we interact with our community. It's everything. That it shouldn't be like a, a single box. Which it wasn't even a single box when I came into the school. It didn't really exist. It just said like teacher has a great relationship with the students. Like cool, but there's so much more to that. And mm-hmm. now we're we're going into you know this really. And sadly, uncharted territory, where everything is foundational within C- like CRT, both cultural relevant teaching and critical race theory, <laughs> right? Both CRTs, right? Well, and that's interesting that you bring up the evaluation because they just came out with that study, uh, you know, the Gates work that was pushing. Oh yeah, evals hey. and basically saying that all the work that was being done was not really helped. Oh, I mean, yeah. it wasn't. There was it was unfounded, right? And so. Yeah. You have states like Michigan that have invested pushing evaluation and then also using um, student growth as an indicator for teacher performance, which right. the New York State Supreme Court has said it's arbitrary and capricious. Right. Um, right? And so <laughs> we, we were doing all these things as educators constantly. And I'm not sure that we're taking the time to critically look at why we're doing it or who we're doing it for and, and what. Um, piece we're doing and Bill Gates had a lot of money he was throwing around to try you know to try to do something but yeah again I think the centering of that was in the wrong place I agree yeah no I agree so I have a question about as an educator both in your practice as a teacher um, or as a professor or an adjunct professor or even as an administrator um, are there times where you've can reflect back or find yourself that are holding up these systems of whiteness or perpetuating them? You know, I, I, I think the whole, the whole like system of education and being able to maneuver. And I use the word maneuver because to, to change a system is so, so difficult and to do it by yourself or with a small like group of people is, is very, very difficult. Um, and I use the word maneuver because there's a way to take down systematic issues, specifically that of a dominant culture, with some good maneuvering. And um, I always think of like kind of like a sports analogy, like defense wins championships. And um, sometimes it's defending what's what's important and defending those that 
like this whole idea of cultural wealth, like defending the fact that that our students already have a ton of knowledge and showing how it can it could actually be leveraged to 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 crush these like um these standardized tests like if we were to position the students and to and to show that they already know this stuff but we just need to translate it in a way that the system is telling us we need to do it then we're we're showing students how to maneuver within a system and then eventually you know they change the system because there's going to be so many successful people in these positions of power that gone through these programs and saying I remember this, like, that's not okay. Like, I remember this and that's not okay. And eventually those maneuvers turn into, I think, deconstructing a larger, a larger system. And I hope I'm alive, but I doubt it. I'm alive to see this, you know, to see some of my students do that work. You know, but I think part of that is also instilling that critical disposition, because I think if they're missing that critical disposition, you have the, and I'm going to use this analogy, and I'm sure I'll get criticized for it, not by you, but, you know, haters, uh, either with the, the faculty tenure process or I'll even liken it to the fraternity sorority process. It, oh, right, it, right, yeah. it was good enough for me to go through that. Yeah. I had to do it. I bought, it's, it's that kind of property aspect. I bought into sure. it. I now have accumulated this. Um, I possess this yeah. power. Now I'm going to put you through it because I want you to go through what I went through. Because if you don't, then I can continue to hold on to my yeah. vantage point. And it's, it's similar to that one faculty member we talked about earlier who had right. power, right. privilege, and all, all those roles and responsibilities. And then when that gets removed, it's, it's, it's that push to the last minute to possess and hold right. on to whatever aspect you can be. And so I think, not having that critical disposition, not being, I, and I would argue, a critical scholar, activist, um, educator yeah. is a detriment because I think then you, that maneuvering then just becomes part of that duplicated system, right? So, sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and sadly, like, I wish it wasn't such a maneuver, but in, in our times, like right now, currently, like, there's, there's ways to do things and you have to be smart. Um, and, um, you know, luckily I'm at a school that, that has welcomed kind of this radical, some would say radical to me, I feel like it's normal approach to education. And, uh, you know, I think it's because the students that we serve, they come from radical situations. And so the way that we equip them to, to be successful is to show them, that there are so many different ways to, again, like maneuver the system to, so that eventually, you know, you can, as a larger group or as you move into a position of power, mm-hmm. you can start to create those systems that will tear it down. And, and that's why I'm here too. I mean, there's a reason I'm here with these students. And I think about that daily is like, you know, these, these 300 students at our high school, a lot of them, this is their last chance school. Like they don't, they've been expelled or um, they've been suspended to the point where they can't come back. But then when we get, we get these students at the school, we realize like they're the sweetest kids, but they're coming from these systems that um, obviously hasn't supported them as learners, hasn't taken into their, their culture and consideration. And when, and when we did, like these kids, they would never miss a day 
they were like killing in the classroom. Like that this research that US has done is, is more than research. Like it's, it's a transformation. It's, it's a, it's a way of like really creating leaders. That's awesome. That's, and that's very impactful and empowering. And I think it's, it gets back to what you and I are talking about is a centering, centering that experience. Right. And, and mm-hmm. the voices that don't, um, that aren't given the access that have right. their, their voices exist, but they haven't been having access to be right. heard. Um, which is interesting that you bring up um, systems of power and privileges as we were sitting here um, recording this. Um, uh, the president of the United States announced that another white man will be sitting on the Supreme court. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh that was uh, just announced as the next nominee to sit on the bench. Oh, wow. Any thoughts about that? Well, I don't know if you know much about him. I, think I do. Yeah. I, I was just, I was just looking at the, the headline right now. Um, it, I, I don't want to say I'm desensitized from what's happening these days, but the first like few things that Trump did when he first came into office, like I, I was like shocked. Like I was confused. I, I cried. I didn't know like what to think. Like I didn't know how real all this really was. And I didn't know like what kind of impact he could make. Um, and that's just like in his first, like, I don't know, month in office. Yeah. So there was a lot of like Im- ambiguous feelings I had. Um, and I, I'm not saying that like, this is like a desensitized, like feeling I have right now, like, Oh wow. Like this is just how it goes. Um, but I feel like things like this where Trump has, has been very strategic about, I, w- I don't want to give him too much like smart credit because uh, I don't, I don't feel like he's sitting and planning this like chess moves. Like I, he's a checkers player, I think, and he's not a chess player. But there's somebody. Uh, I mean, he's surrounded himself with people that are chess players, and and that's even scarier. Um, so this move of, um, of 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 putting somebody like this in the Supreme Court is, um, I don't know exactly like what that means. Um, I, I mean, I do, I can give you like the, probably the academic answer of what's probably going to happen. But like, does this mean like, like I could be caged up now? <laughs> I don't know. Like, you know, things, things like that. I, I don't exactly know. And I think that that's where my fear comes from with a lot of this is that being a person that's minoritized in this country is, I feel like these kinds of moves are just kind of like, I, I'm like floating, like, I won't know until like my cousin is on the border caged up and I'm like, Oh shit. Like, am I next now? I mean, I'm a citizen, but he could, he could write something in the law that says I'm no longer, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know where his threshold is. Yeah. And so I, I think these powers of checks and balances is just, it's being tested right now and it's being messed with and it's, it's scary. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing, too, about this is the Supreme Court tends to be this, even though there's a lot of rhetoric about activist judges, this, one of the slower-moving bodies, right, of of government, and, and the precedent that they use is precedent <laughs> often, and, and, and that comes from a very yeah masculinized white perspective, and when you think yeah. about the history of the Supreme Court, 108, if he gets confirmed, of the 114 justices have been white cis men. And, right. 
and and you think about the the lens that is being used liberal conservative it doesn't matter right. to create or to affirm law or to strike law down has been with that lens so right. it, there's not that you know it's it's like your 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 jazz camp right you oh know, yeah that's, that's so true yeah and and that that to me is what is nervousness because i think when I think about, particularly in higher ed, right, because we fall, we're following a lot on legal act and what we can do, what we can't do. Right. Um, and a lot of it comes down to how the decisions will be made. And a lot of times you hear, well, if it's just, if it passes the test of whatever precedent is set, but that precedent concerns me because yeah. often it's, it's race neutral, not race conscious. Right. You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's neutral and neutrality is, often supporting the status quo. Absolutely. Right. And so that, yeah. I think this, this, I mean, we knew it was going to be someone who probably was conservative, but the fact that it's just, again, done with that lens of being a white cis man, it's just yeah. problematic in my mind. So, it, I mean, to, to add a little bit of light to this conversation, because, you know, as, as like critical scholars, we, we have to think about our work as, creating change yeah, and, and just us as individuals existing at this time and not just taking the blows and it's not taking the hits and, and just going down with the punches. But I also see opportunity that when things like this happen, that this is when communities can strengthen. And, and we've seen this in history in the past. Like we've seen some amazing um, activists, like historically, globally, like rise from from these situations and really lead people down like a path of like of of greatness. And so as much as like this is such a like a like a, a, a an iron sheet of racism and whiteness, I also like welcome the challenge in many ways because um because of all the hard work I've put into you know, deconstructing and unpacking my experience and, 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 and empowering myself to, to engage in these conversations, even to have this conversation with you, um, you know, to be able to, to speak about it in a way that, um, that can make change. I think it, there's hope though too. Um, and I specifically like think about like my kids and mm-hmm. my experience and what they're like seeing and I hope that, you know, that my, my daughter will like, she'll, she'll somehow like carry on like the, the work because as much as we see these kids wearing like make America great again hats, like I also have a kid over here that's reading Tara Yoso's work. Right. So I think the, it continues like there's hope. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I actually, um, in my introduction chapter of my dissertation, I talk a little bit about that. And for me, I, I kind of unpack it from the lens of I've been taught my whole life that opportunity can happen. And so I look at it from a perspective of because I have access, because I have privilege, you know, if I work hard enough or I think hard enough, the American dream is possible for me. And I think part of the reason why I get frustrated is I see that not happening. Um, not necessarily for me, but for mm-hmm. others. And I think 
Sure. Um, finding ways to continue that hope and not create a false hope, but actually do something about it. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to start this whole endeavor yeah. is to, you know, um, as much as I love catching up with you uh, yeah. and having and having some time to trick you into talking with me on the phone uh, for an hour um, <laughs> plus, um, which I don't think we've ever done before. No. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think I, I really just I want to find a way to continue to push right. and not in a way that I think that, you know, people uh, say what you will about the president. Um, let me rephrase that. Say what you will about the previous presidents, particularly I'll t- I'll yeah. t- um, George W. Bush. Yeah. I, I don't think he was a evil human being. I don't think he had ill intentions. I just think he it was missing misguided on certain things yeah um, I, I mean we're also i don't know i don't want to say we're desensitized but like right. you know we look back at some of those presidents we're like but we felt a certain way oh yeah and now I we've would, gone so extreme that we're like oh they weren't that bad it's like but they still were oh they were yeah i <laughs> remember i had a blog um i took down uh i don't i think i scrubbed it um when bush was president and um some of the things I wrote in there, I, I mean, I obviously was angry and frustrated and sure. feeling, you know, looking back and reading my writing, I was like, wow, I really was passionate about that. And I think it was right after yeah. the Kerry Bush election. Yeah. And those feelings amplified, I guess. Yeah. It's, you know, and I, 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 and you know, I'll also say this too, like, you know, my, my privilege of, of being a male is that I'm able to, you know, I also feel like being this, PhD program and to read research and, and to conduct research and and I I know that where I I'm at in that space is a privilege and um but my I think my interaction with the academy and and seeing how I can and I've been using the word translate a lot and I think there's something like culturally that I feel like I'm trying to bridge but I think you know, we're in this place of power and I think power is like the, the knowledge that both you and I and some of our fellow scholars have uh, through this program is that we're now equipped with what it takes to engage in those conversations with our university presidents, our superintendents, our government officials. Not to say that we weren't before, but I feel like we have the academic ammo and the and the approach with these individuals that I don't think that a lot of us had before. And I think we're still growing with that through our research. And to me, that's a privilege. And, and I, yeah, it worries me about what this administration can do, but I'm also prepared and ready to, to fight in many different ways. I mean, be that mental or physically. And so I saw your reaction about affirmative action and, and I, Saw right. you were frustrated, but at the same time, I, I did pick up a gleam of let's throw down, not in a not in a way of you know. <laughs> it could it could lead to that. <laughs> it could, I guess. If you listen to Alex Jones. It could. We were yeah. in a civil war apparently a few days ago. Yeah, four days ago. I didn't get the memo about it, but <laughs> yeah. No, I I um, you know, when you when you love something so much, you you put all your all your everything into it, mental, physical, emotional. And, 
you know, if we truly believe in, in a diverse uh, uh, access for diverse, uh, our diverse students into higher ed, then we, we put everything into it. And that's why we're in the program because, you know, we, we, we believe in it, we, we value it, and an administration isn't going to scare me. Um, and I think that that's the thing that I feel I think most is I'm not angry, but I'm prepared and I'm ready. And I'm, I feel like every day that um, I'm in this program and writing and doing research, I'm even more ready. So I, I'm not too scared of Trump and what he has coming. Well, that's good. That, make, that gives me hope, Josh. No, I, I, you know, one of the things too I want to mention is like, uh, luckily I had great parents growing up and um, while my, my mom and dad did not, you know, get any type of degree necessarily, but my, my father particularly came from a family where his mother knew that the key to success or at least to some sort of power was education. And she, she, she didn't really attend school, but when she came to the U.S., she, she bought property. She knew that there was something powerful about purchasing space and owning businesses. And, and that's just, I think, that's what, like, supported me in, in my, my progress. So it's like if I do anything less than that, it's like I haven't, like, fulfilled, like, the legacy that was needed. Like, why the reason my family came to this country um, – with that said, I mean, I don't know how, how this has happened, but three out of four of my siblings are all in PhD programs right now. Yeah, that's amazing. Which I think is rare, right? Is that normal? I don't know if that's – I say normal in the sense of even like white normal. It might be the norm. I don't know. White normal. I guess I do have a question for you. Yeah. Um, Let me turn the recording off. <laughs> um. Uh, you know, as, as you finish this program and you're going to enter kind of a, we're all going to enter this new chapter of kind of, uh, you know, in our academic spaces, I feel like how, how, what is your number one approach to, to confronting whiteness with, within, you know, I always, like I said, my people earlier and I said, my people is like Chicano people, like within your people. Well, since my people dominate educational spaces, you know, I think that that's my one number one approach is to constantly bring it up in the sense of when I'm in a room and we're talking about state policy or we're talking about um, voicing concern for all of the higher ed institutions in the state of Michigan that prepare teachers, um, it, one, just being the person that acknowledges, hey, there are voices that are not here. Every look around the room, you know, and I, um, I, I tend to be that voice now. Um, I think the other piece and aspect is checking myself, um, you know, and that's why I asked that question earlier about the other ways that you find that you perpetuate whiteness. Um, and and it, I, as a white person, I, you know, have unknowingly and unknowingly invested in, in, in this. And, and so for me, it's deconstructing that in my own experience as an administrator when I support a policy or I support a rule, am I supporting it from a lens of whiteness or am I supporting it from a lens where I'm centering, um, you know, minor, the minoritized experience. And so, right. um, for example, right now we have, uh, for, I don't know if you're aware of this, um, the creditor for teacher education institutions, one of the creditors, um, CAPE requires mm -hmm. that your cohort coming in that are preparing teachers have to take a nationally normed 
standardized test uh-huh. and be in the average for the cohort has to be above the 50th percentile. So like uh-huh. SAT, it would be, it's like 11, 11 something, 1140. Uh-huh. Um, ACT would be like 22. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and so in Michigan, we've had that, the SAT as a, you, you helped me do a little work on this right. um, as a, as an entrance requirement. And it was set at the career and college readiness level, which is that 1140 range ish, 1100 mm-hmm. range. And recently the governor signed a law saying we're, we're doing away with the basic skills. Institutions can have it or not. Um, wow. but, our, but, our national, but our national creditor says you have, yeah. to, you have to. So we're talking about a policy right now of um, getting rid of it, keeping the test, but using it actually for me, I want to use it as a sense of disruption. So what yeah. I want to say is say, a, a teacher coming in with a 17 ACT or a student coming in with a 17 ACT, kind of that build, build them up, build the skills um, right. or, a, or a sub sub 1100 SAT. Yeah. Uh, are they going to be any different? Or is, are they less likely to get through our program? A. So if the answer is no, then the measure is invalid. Are they right. less likely to be an effective teacher? Whatever we want to define that to be. Um, right. If the answer is no, then it's still an effect ineffective measure. So, right. me, I my my push is to keep the policy, um, but eliminate the the gate, the barrier. So eliminate the the passing score. Just collect yeah. the data, and right. then use the data to actually push against standardized testing as being a, a piece. Right. Um, and initially, when when the governor signed that legislation, my initial thought was we need to keep the policy as is because we need to we need to satisfy this requirement. Right. And I had to push myself on that. And I think that that's one of those things that I have to, because I want, you know what I'm saying? Like I wanted to, right. So I had to find a way to, to deconstruct my own piece about that because with the standardized yeah. test SAT scores, as you and I saw, yeah. I mean, there's, there's still cultural bias. There's still yeah. racial and, and bias. The SAT has gotten more rigorous too. They changed yeah. the, they changed it um, like two or three years ago. And, I was teaching an SAT prep class um, not too long ago, and like I had to really study up because, like it, I, I they say it's more culturally relevant to to students, but I I actually think it's not. Um, so that'll be interesting to see what you do with that. Um, and I, you know, it's also interesting because I think of other programs that tussle with that. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's PhD programs, like even ours, like the way that they dealt with the GRE and this GPA of your master's and, mm-hmm. you know, I remember talking to one of our professors and I asked her, you know, what does our GRE score need to be? And she said, you just need to take it. Right. I said, okay, then what, you know, like, is there just, a just pay the money, just pay the money, you know, <laughs> but I'm wondering if, if that, you know, kind of our program that we went through, if they're tussling with what you're tussling with too is, and I don't want to give this person too much credit, but I'm wondering if there's maybe some similarities in that. Potentially, and I would even say though, when you look at GPA from masters or GPA in general, there's a lot of things that go into that. You know, um, depending on what the major was, and if you're looking at undergrad, I would probably say that your master's program was more rigorous than my master's program. So, even comparing the GPA wouldn't be a really good yeah. indicator of whatever. Yeah. I think what I've read is most of the time you want to have above a three point. Cause that tends to be the, the level of which a person's able to perform at that, 
Yeah, academically, right? Yeah, right. And the writing, right? All right, but as you and I both know, well, I know, I still didn't wasn't able to write until mm, I, I can't still write. You're a great um, writer. What are you talking yeah. about? So, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Yeah, of course. Gosh, you're, yeah, um, a great person and a great friend, and um, so likewise. Thanks. Well, that's it for our very first episode uh, here at Whiteness in America podcast. I want to thank Josh Trinidad for uh, being a part of this episode and uh, hanging out with me for the last hour and just talking about life and music and education and the intersection of race and other identities in, in that and, and his experience with um, experiencing whiteness and, and experiencing racism in, in those in, in his, his life. Um, so uh, a big thanks to Rare Noise Records for allowing us to use some sample clips of Josh's music. They were a big help and partner in making sure this episode is possible. Um, you can follow Josh and find his music at um, rarenoiserecords.com. Um, you can also follow him at Twitter um, at Joshua Trinidad. Uh, and you can also find his stuff um, at, on the Bandcamp website, which is joshuatrinidad.bandcamp.com. I'll have the links to those posted um, up on, on our website, whitenessinamerica.com. Of course, as always, you can follow me at whitenessinamerica.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Disrupt Whiteness. That's one S on the end of whiteness. Um, again, that's Disrupt Whiteness. Or you can send us an email at uh, whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. I look forward to your feedback. I know this is our first episode. Um, we're going to uh, bring in some more guests, and sometimes we're going to talk about the guest experiences and and uh, their lives and, and their interactions and intersections with their experiences and racism and whiteness and white supremacy. And sometimes we'll just talk about topics and viewpoints and, and be able to uh, uh, go through that. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me in this episode when we talked with Josh as we spoke at the end, he asked me the question about what is it that I'm going to do. And I really think that my work and my mission is to reach out and make sure that we're continuing to have the conversations about race and racism. We don't talk about this stuff enough, particularly in, amongst white folks. White folks do not talk about race. They don't talk about racism. And I think partly it's because we don't have to. And I think we need to start being able to engage on it. We need to start taking ownership of building these systems, and um, I think that's really important. So, um, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being a part of this experience. More episodes soon to come. Please subscribe. You can find us on iTunes. Uh, we're also available on Google Play, and as always, you can download the episode uh, from whitenessinamerica.com. Uh, I look forward to seeing you next time. And playing us out, uh, we'll be off of Josh's latest record, record called In November. Uh, the song is Torian.